Hey guys, it's Sunday reading day, and I'm going to be reading from True Ghost Stories by Harewood Carrington. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Happy Sunday, everybody. How's everybody doing? I had a great Sunday so far. Went over to Denny's to celebrate my birthday meal after <laughs> all these weeks. Uh, plus today um, would have been my mother, I think, 92nd birthday, I think. I'm not positive on that one. I think it was 97, 92nd birthday. So it was kind of like a twofold thing. And then Lisa, one of my producers on my, for the show here, and I remember my team, her birthday was the 13th of February. So we kind of, you know, I don't want to say, hang on a second. Okay, I just want to get an adjustment on the sound. I don't want to say we killed two birds with one stone, or however, <laughs> however you want to hear that said, because it's, uh, you know, it can be insulting, but I was able to get three of us taken care of all at once, so it felt good. It felt like my mom was there at Denny's, because she always loved to go to Denny's and have pancakes. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. And that means we can get to you. It might take us a while to get to you, but we definitely can get to you. And in the case that we can't get to you right away, you know, it might take a couple of days because California is a big, and I'm talking big state. And in, in, in those cases, we do have mediums and psychics on staff who can phone you. And if there is something paranormal going on at your location, in most cases, they can uh, calm that energy down until we can get out there. So, uh, yeah. So if you need to find us, Oh, yeah, it doesn't take us more than two days to get out there. Sorry, forgot that part. Just drank some water. Uh, if you need to find this, go ahead and just hit, the, hit Google. Uh, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Radio, and you'll find us. Uh, we are on Facebook, so it's a lot easier to find us there. Our websites are down as we're doing full revisions on them, but we're going to have them up shortly for you guys to see. But, uh, yeah, that's the way to find us. That being said, if you're watching from Facebook today, and a lot of you are, if you haven't done so already, please hit that follow-up. You, know, you like what you hear today. Please hit that follow button. Uh, you know, we're always looking for more followers. And uh, show us some love today. Show us some thumbs up, some, some happy hearts, you know, happy faces, things like that. And go ahead and chat in the chat room. I may not be able to answer you because I, have, I will be reading off a PDF today, so uh, my, my attention will be elsewhere. But... Uh, you know, chat amongst yourselves in the chat room, say, you know, say hi to me, do whatever. Or if you're like a couple friends of mine, uh, they like to clean their house and put me in their pocket and walk around. <laughs> so I'm like, pocket stories, right? We call it pocket stories. Yeah, you know, especially on Sundays when, when I'm reading for the um, paranormal theme book. So yeah, go ahead and do that. Uh, the same thing for Facebook, uh, for YouTube, uh, you know. Please uh, feel free to subscribe. We've got more than 900 videos sitting over there. They're all different topics. I think you'll find something that you like. Um, you know, and again, uh, if you like what you hear on C today, or mostly what you hear, because to see me read is kind of boring. 
But uh, if, you, if you like what you hear today, be sure to uh, give me a thumbs up. Show, you know, show, show me some love. Show me some love. And uh, again, react in the chat room because it works the same way with Facebook and YouTube and Twitch and TikTok. Where the you know the more reactions we get, the higher up uh, the, the computer moves to you know send us out to people to hear us. Okay, yeah, that's that's how that works. How the system works. Complicated but effective. Okay, we're going to be reading from the True Ghost Stories with by by by, by Harry Carrington, and we're probably going to be finishing that off today at some point. I don't know for sure if we're going to be able to like do the whole show with that one book, but if we don't, I have another book lined up, and the next book is going to be is an interesting read as well. Now, whether the stories in the next book are true, we're going to find out in the forward. I just happened to glance through it earlier today, and it 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 it, it, it looked pretty looked pretty darn good. So uh, that's what's going to happen, and I'll be reading for about an hour today. And we've been reading this book for the last five weekends. And this book is based, this book is uh, allegedly true stories from the 1800s up until the 1940s. And uh, the, the Society of uh, Parapsychical Research is something that I've been studying since 18 years ago when I became a ghost hunter, they, they, they have a lot of books out, and I began to follow them. And these, these guys are like the, gra- the great, great, great grandpappies of paranormal investigators. And uh, so it's been an interesting book, and if you guys want to pick that up, there is no copyright on it, so you can just find it online and read it. That's why I'm reading these at Project Gutenberg. It's called Project Gutenberg. And you can Google it. You have thousands of books. People have painstakingly taken some of these books and put them online manually, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, there's thousands of books, thousands of topics. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read for about an hour. And like I said, uh, feel free to comment amongst yourselves in the chat room. I will check back periodically to make sure you guys can hear me, because you never know. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and uh, so I'll get, I'll get to reading, and, uh, and away we go, okay? And uh, again, if, if you like what you hear, maybe there's other people in the house, you're, maybe you're having dinner or whatever tonight, you know, uh, maybe you're just winding down for the, for, from the weekend, you know, grab your jammies, grab, grab, grab your fuzzy wuzzies, sit on down on that couch, drink some coffee, drink some hot cocoa, maybe some wine, even, dim those lights, and uh, let's get to some ghost stories. And my creek is back in my chair, too, so it is what it is. Okay, we left off, when we left our heroes, now when we left off, let me get this down to where I can read it, there we go. Whoa, that was just jumped up on me, don't be doing that. So I am reading off a, a, a text thing, so sometimes because the way this is written, uh, rewritten, I'm getting these big old paragraphs, so if I get kind of messed up and have to go back and then find my way, that's why. Okay, so the first one we're reading today uh, by, by, by Herford Kennington is a Face Slap by a Ghost. And again, these are stories that the society had investigated and could not disprove. All right, these are things like, 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 oh, maybe there's a ghost here. These are things that these guys, these scientists and who are working with psychics and working with, 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 with other types of professionals investigated and could not disprove. So here we go. Face slapped by a ghost. The following remarkable event occurred to a friend of mine, an elderly married lady, whom I've known for some time. She is now making her home in Brooklyn, but at the time of her gruesome experience was residing in England. It is some years since this occurred, but the incident, she assured me, was just just as vividly in her mind as though it all happened yesterday. This is her story, just as she told it to me. 
I was staying with some friends of the country. They had an old rambling house with long, draughty halls and corridors all over it. As the house was already full of guests, I had to sleep in a large room at the end of a long passage on the ground floor. The room in itself was comfortable enough, large and warm. Yet there was an atmosphere about that apartment which I did not quite like. In fact, the whole house made me feel creepy for no reason that I can give. Bedtime came all too soon, and I took my candle and was shown my room. My hostess saw that I had everything I needed, and then, saying good night, went upstairs to bed. I had half undressed when I saw the door of my room gently and quietly opened, as though a stealthy hand were softly pressing it open. I gazed transfixed until, when wide open, I could see that no one was in reality on the other side of the door. At that, I drew a breath of relief. A draught, I thought, coming down the hallway. It is nothing. And I chided myself on my fears, shut the door, and proceeded to undress. I had not gone far, however, when, to my amazement, the door opened again, just as quietly and stealthily as before. Again I closed the door and proceeded with my undressing. I had by this time finished and had donned my nightgown, preparing to get into bed. At that moment, I was horrified to see my door open for the third time, just as it did before, slowly, slowly, until it rested on its hinges, wide open to the hall. I now determined to investigate. So, taking my candle in my hand, I stepped out into the hall and proceeded down towards the front door. I had not taken more than three or four steps, however, when... Excuse me, when the candle in my hands was extinguished, that would do it for me, as though a breath of wind coming from nowhere had blown it out. I did not much relish this, as the matches were in my room, but I determined to keep on in the dark and see what the cause of this could be. So I kept on and on down the dark hall, my left hand holding the extinguished candle, my right extended so that I could feel the solid masonry all the way down the corridor. I had proceeded perhaps halfway when a strange thing occurred. I suddenly felt myself slapped on the left cheek by something cold and moist and clammy. I put my hand up to my face and felt it was wet. For an instinct, I hesitated, and then I proceeded down the hall until I came to the front door. That I found closed and locked. Having thus explored the whole length of the hall and found nothing, I turned back to regain my room still holding the candle in my left hand, and still feeling the, the wall with my outstretched right hand, I crept cautiously along, not knowing what to expect. Again, I had proceeded about halfway down the hall when I felt the same cold quick slap in the face, this time on the right cheek, and again I found it was wet. Thoroughly frightened now, I fled to my room as fast as my legs could carry me. Once within, I closed and secured the door by placing a chair against it. Next, finding my box of matches, I relighted my candle. Then I surveyed myself in the mirror to see what could be upon my face. Imagine my horror when, on looking in the glass, I discovered two long streaks of blood, one upon either cheek. I was so terror-struck that I gazed at myself for a few moments, unable to move or speak. Then I screamed. And after that, I have no clear recollection of what happened. I have a hazy recollection of anxious faces bending over me. 
of a long hum of voices and oblivion. It took me many weeks to recover from the shock of that night. Wow. Next one is alone with a ghost in a church. The following case is sent to me by a correspondent. I once knew a young man by the name of Charles D. Bradlaugh, who took a delight in ridiculing ghost stories and, whenever possible, in providing them to be due to fraud, trickery, or proving them, sorry, proving them to be due to fraud, trickery, or hallucination. He stated he was afraid of nothing. I said to him one day in conversation, If you are as fearless as you say, would you be willing to sit and spend a night alone, locked up in a church with a corpse freshly placed in his coffin? He replied that he would do it any time. So the test was shortly arranged. One of, one of the parishioners had just died and had been placed in the crypt of the church with the lid of the coffin removed. The lights were all distinguished. We, looked, we locked the door after us and went away, leaving Bradlaugh and the spirits to fight it out between them. What occurred during the night must be told in Bradlaugh's own words, as nearly as I can recall them. Here we go. When I heard the key turn in the door that night, I confessed that a strange feeling came over me for the first time in my life. I wanted to get out, but of course, I knew it was useless. And in the next place, my pride forbade my leaving. Shaking off the superstitious fear that had settled upon me, I turned away and proceeded to explore, as best as I could, the whole of the church. A bright moonlight fell in through the windows, casting queer shadows in various directions and across the long rows of pews and the altar at the far end of the church. I walked about, looking at everything. Curiously, and it had been long since I found myself inside the church. Then I proceeded to the crypt, and, walking boldly up to the coffin, I gazed long and earnestly at the corpse laying within it, as though to familiarize myself with it. I went on the principle that familiarity breeds contempt. When I had done this, I went back to the nave of the church, and, finding a comfortable place, I lay down, and was soon in a state bordering on sleep. I should have been asleep, probably, very soon, but, just as I was dropping off, I heard a faint sound coming from the direction of the crypt. It was like a deep sigh, and this was followed by other sounds which I find it hard to describe. All I know is that, in the quiet and stillness of that awful place, those sounds, slight as they were, were truly appalling, and chilled the very blood in my veins. Their very indistinctness added to their terror. I could not conceive what would make such uncanny noises. I sat up and strained my eyes in the darkness, trying to penetrate the gloom. Then I heard the first faint footsteps coming up the stairs from the crypt. At first, the, these were faint. But they became louder and louder, until finally I could hear them plainly. Undoubtedly, they, they were footfalls, as though a human being were mounting the steps from the crypt where the corpse had been, had been laid. I rose from my seat, my hair standing on end, while queer, cold shivers ran up and down my back. I advanced one or two paces toward the door, hardly knowing what to expect. Then, as I looked, I saw a step into the bright moonlight, the corpse, that a few minutes before I had seen lying in the coffin downstairs. Frantic with fear, I rushed at the corpse, still shrouded as it was, in the white wrappings which torn and, dis torn and, 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 and disheveled, still enveloped the body, 
I raised one hand as though to strike the ghost, and thrust the hateful thing from me, when I felt a stunning blow on the point of my jaw, and a moment later, I had lost sensibility. When I awoke, you were around me. You know the rest. To make a long story short, it turned out that the supposed corpse was not really dead at all, but in a sort of trance, and had been buried prematurely. He had revived in the night and was advancing into the church when he encountered Bradlaugh in the, in the doorway. Thinking him a robber or an assassin, he had struck first, and, being a powerful man with, and a great boxer, he had knocked out Bradlaugh by a blow on the jaw. When we arrived in the morning, we found Bradlaugh senseless, and the corpse, now stripped of his grave clothes, bending over him, dashing cold water on his face. That's pretty, that's pretty good. I like that one. I gotta remember that one. A Haunted House in France. The following case, said to be authentic, is quoted here because of the incident of the shouts and laughter which were heard, and which served to throw an interesting sidelight on the case that follows it. The Reverend F.G. Lee, in his book, Sights and Shadows, gives the following account sent to him of a haunted house in France. In the spring of the year 1891, great excitement was occasioned by a disembodied spirit in the haunted house in Laporte at Nice. This is situated in the terrace close to the quarries where, after the reports concerning it, as many as 2,000 persons were often gathered around it. The spirits haunting it, never visible, however, would beat the inmates so unmercifully that the blows would leave bruises. Hundreds of persons saw the result and testified to the undoubted facts. The local police, on being appealed to, and having heard the evidence of numerous eyewitnesses, and of those persons who were inconvenienced, formed a body of organized inquirers who, shrewd though in mundane manners, utterly failed to discover anything or anybody. On one occasion, thirteen men sat up in three rooms, which had been well-lighted, and some of them played cards for several hours to while away the time. During the whole of this occurrence, the strangest noises were heard in various parts of the building. It seemed at one time as if the whole regiment of soldiers were tramping, as, as, as if a whole regiment, I'm sorry, a whole regiment of soldiers were, were tramping up the chief staircase. Pictures swung to and fro upon the walls with any, without any visible effect. Then heavy blows were heard on the walls, and it appeared that the closed doors and the shutters were being violently struck and thumped, as if with a large hammer wrapped in cloth. Note from the author, this is a common feature of, of haunted houses. Continuing. On two occasions, a room on the ground floor was found to be in the densest darkness, though outside the house, outside the, house the sun was shining. On another occasion, just before midnight, when certain persons were specially present to note any supernatural occurrences, all the lamps in the house were suddenly put out, while shouts and laughter were heard in every part of the place more particularly from empty rooms. At the same time, heavy blows were experienced by those present who were severely bruised, and, large, and a large bottle of ink was thrown by invisible hands from the top of the staircase. Every attempt was made to discover the source of these extraordinary disorders, but without avail. They were, they were reported to have ceased for several months, but to have commenced again in a later period. A local communication says that they still occur at intervals. Okay. Now here's an area I believe can be 
haunted, really haunted, a haunted house in Georgia. The following account is taken from a, from the report of the San Francisco Examiner and is certainly one of the most striking cases of the character on record. It is not put forward as strictly evidential, but it is interesting nature nature certainly, but its interesting nature certainly warrants its insertion in this volume. Quote. Soon after the Washingtons took up their abode in their new home, they began to be disturbed by strange sounds and odd phenomena. These disturbances generally took the form of noises in the house after the family had retired and the lights had been extinguished. Continual banging on the doors, things were returned, the doorbell rang, and the annoying of the house dog, a large and intelligent mastiff. One day, Don Caesar, the mastiff, was found in the hallway barking furiously and bristling with rage, while his eyes seemed directed to the wall just before him. At last, he made a spring forward with a hoarse yelp of ungovernable fury, only to fall back as if flung down by some powerful and cruel hand. Upon examination, it was found that his neck had been broken. The house cat, on the contrary, seemed rather to enjoy the favor of the ghost, and would often enter a door as if escorting some visitor whose hand was stroking her back. She would also climb about a chair, rubbing herself and purring as if well pleased at the presence of someone in the seat. She and Don Caesar invariably manifested this eccentric conduct at the same time, as though the mysterious being were visible to both of them. The annoying visitant finally took to arousing the family at all hours of the night by making such a row as to render any rest, any rest impossible. This noise, which consisted of shouts, groans, hideous laughter, and a peculiar, most distressing wail, would sometimes proceed, apparently, from under the house, sometimes from the ceiling, and at other times in the very room in which the family was seated. One night, Miss Amelia Walsingham, the young lady daughter, was engaged at her toilet, oh boy, when she felt a hand softly laid on her shoulder. Thinking it was her mother or sister, she glanced at the glass before her, only to be thunderstruck at seeing the mirror reflect no form but her own, though she could plainly see a man's broad hand lying on her arm. Privy ghosts. She brought the family to, to her by her screams, but when they reached her, all sign of the mysterious hand had gone. Mr. Walsingham himself saw footsteps form beside his own while walking through the garden after a light rain. The marks were those of a man's naked feet, and fell beside his own as if the person walking at his side. Matters grew so serious that the Walsinghams became frightened and talked of leaving the house, when an event took place which confirmed them in this determination. The family was seated at the supper table with several guests who were spending the evening when a loud groan was heard in the room overhead. This was, however, nothing unusual, and very little notice was taken of it until one of the visitors pointed out a stain of what seemed like blood on the white tablecloth and it was seen that some liquid was slowly dripping on the table from the ceiling overhead. This liquid was so much like freshly shed blood that it horrified those who watched, who watched its slow dripping. Mr. Walsingham, with several of his guests, ran hastily upstairs and into the room directly over the one in which the blood was dripping. A carpet covered the floor, and nothing appeared to explain the source of ghastly rain. But... Anxious to satisfy themselves thoroughly, the carpet was immediately ripped up, and the board and the boarding found to be perfectly dry, and even covered with a thin layer of dust. 
And all the while the floor was being examined, the persons below could swear the blood never ceased to drop. A stain the size of a dinner plate was formed before the drop ceased to fall. This stain was examined the next day under the microscope and was pronounced by competent chemists to be human blood. The walls and animals left the house next day. Since then, the place has been apparently given over to spooks and evil spirits, which make the night hideous with the noise of revel, shouts, and furious yells. Hundreds from all over this country and adjacent ones have visited the house. One daring spirit, however, Horace Gunn of Savannah, accepted a wager that he could not spend 24 hours in it, and did so, though he declares that there is not enough money in the country to make him pass another night there. He was found in the morning after by his friends with whom he made the wager, in a swoon. He has never recovered from the shock of this horrible experience, and is still confined to his bed, suffering from nervous prostration. His story is that shortly after nightfall he endeavored to kill the fire in one of the rooms, and to light the lamp with which he had provided himself, but to his surprise and consternation found it impossible to do either. An icy breath, which seemed to proceed from some invisible person at his side, extinguished each match as he lighted it. At this peculiarly terrifying turn of the affairs, Mr. Gunn would have left the house and forfeited the amount of his wager, a considerable one, but he was restrained by the fear of ridicule. ridicule. He steadied himself in the dark with what calmness he could and waited out the developments. For some time nothing occurred, and the young man was half dozing when, after an hour or two, he was brought to his feet by a sudden yell of pain or rage that seemed to come from under the house. This appeared to be the signal for an outbreak of hideous noises all over the house. The sound of running feet could be heard scurrying up and down the stairs, hastening from one room to another, as if one person fled from the pursuit of a second. This kept up for nearly an hour, but at last ceased altogether, and for some time Mr. Gunn, Gunn sat in darkness and quiet, and had about concluded that the performance was over for the night. At last, however, his attention was attracted by a white spot that gradually appeared on the opposite wall. The spot continued to brighten until it seemed to be a disk of white fire. When the horrified spectator saw that the light emanated from, from and surrounded a human head, which, without a body or any visible means of support, was moving slowly along the wall, about the height of a man from the floor, this ghastly head appeared to be that of an aged person, though whether male or female it was difficult to determine. The hair was long and gray, and matted together with dark clots of blood, which also issued from a deep, jagged wound in one temple. The cheeks were fallen in, and the whole face indicated suffering and unspeakable misery. The eyes were wide open and gleamed with an unearthly fire, while the glassy eyes seemed to follow the terror-stricken gun, who was too thoroughly paralyzed by what he saw to move or cry out. Finally, the head disappeared, and the room was once more left in darkness. But the young man could hear what seemed to be half a dozen persons moving about him, while the whole house shook as if rocked by some violent earthquake. The growing and the wailing that broke forth from every direction was something terrific, and an unearthly rattling banging as of china or tin pans being flung to the ground floor from the upper story added to the deafening noise. Gunn at last roused himself sufficiently to try and leave the haunted house. Feeling his way along the wall in order to avoid the beings, whatever they were, 
that filled the room. The young man had nearly succeeded in reaching the door when he found himself seized by the ankle and was violently thrown to the floor. He was grasped by icy hands, which sought to grip him about the throat. He struggled with, with his unseen foe, but was soon overpowered and choked into insensibility. When found by his friends, his throat was black with the marks of long, thin fingers, armed with cruel, curved nails. The only explanation which can be found from these mysterious manifestations is that about three months before, a number of bones were discovered on the Walsingham place, which some declared even then to be those of a human being. Mr. Walsingham pronounced them, however, to be an animal's, and they were hastily thrown into an adjacent lime kiln. That'll teach him. It is supposed to be the outraged spirit of a person to whom they belonged in life, which is now creating the consternation. That'll teach you. Shaken by a ghost. The following narrative is vouched for by Mrs. H.S. Iredell of Turnbridge Wells, England, a relative of the Reverend Dr. Lee, who gives the case in his sights and shadows. Let me check and see what you guys are up to over on StreamYard, making sure we're still broadcasting. Hello, Pamela. I guess, I guess I'm not in your pocket today. Pamela is the one that carries me in her pocket. <laughs> okay. The haunted house in question is near Wandsworth Common. The late occupants of it were a man, his wife, and their child. They had to leave it, for they could get no rest in it at night for the fearful noises which went on incessantly, like sounds as if a sledgehammer wrapped in flannel struck against the walls. The sister-in-law of the late occupants who told me of it, had spent days at the house, so I heard all the story firsthand. One night, she likewise felt as if someone had taken her by the shoulders, and she was being roughly shaken from side to side. Her husband, who was with her at the time, saw her and saw that she was being shaken by an invisible power, stretched out his hands to take hold of her, but he felt right up his arms to his shoulder, a shock, as if it were electricity, which made him instantly draw back and cry out. Nothing was ever seen, but in a special sleeping room which seemed to be haunted, the clothes used to be pulled off the bed at night and thrown on the floor, and then they used to raise or rear themselves up again on the bed. Yikes! Since the above is written, it is reported that no less than five families have respectively occupied this house as tenants, who one and all have left it as soon as possible. It is now said to be permanently unattended. I can see why. <laughs> this next case is given because of the incident of the electric shock. Well, this case, I'm sorry, the one above. This case is given because of the incident of the electric shock, which was the recipient, which the recipient received, when attempting to interfere with the, with the spirit. It serves as the interesting, modern, and apparently well-authenticated instance of what occurred in Lighten's story, which follows. So there's a couple stories where this happened. This is why ghost hunters keep meticulous notes, just like with me, I can go back to cases that I remember and do co and, and do compare comparisons on them. Bogwan Lighten's story, The House and the Brain, is perhaps the most remarkable ghost story of this character on record, and is considered by many the best ever written. The phenomena occur in a house which is reputed to be haunted. No one will live in it. At last, one brave soul determines to pass the night within its walls. He and his servant take up their abode in it. And, after various startling adventures of a minor character, the grand climax of the night is reached. 
As the author sat reading by the fire, the following occurred, which is told in his own words. Buckle up, buttercups, here we go. I now became aware that something interposed between the page and the light. The, pa the page was overshadowed. I looked up, and I saw what I shall find it very difficult, perhaps impossible, to describe. It was a darkness, shaping itself forth from the air in very undefined outline. I cannot say it was a human, human form, and yet it had more resemblance to a human form, or rather shadow, than to anything else. As it stood, holding apart and distinct from the air and light around it, its dimensions seemed gigantic, the summit nearly touching the ceiling. While I gazed, a feeling of intense cold seized me. An iceberg could not more have chilled me, nor could the cold of an iceberg have been more purely physical. I felt convinced that it was not the cold caused by fear. As I continued to gaze, I thought, but this I cannot say with precision, that I distinguished two eyes looking on, from, looking on me from the height. One moment I fancied that I distinguished them clearly. The next they seemed gone, but still two rays of pale blue light frequently shot through the darkness, as from the height, uh, as from the height on which I half believed, half doubted that I had encountered the eyes. I strove to speak. My voice utterly failed me. I could only think to myself, is this fear? It is not fear. I strove to rise in vain. I felt weighed down by an irresistible force. Indeed, my impression was that of an immense and overwhelming power opposed to my volition. That sense of utter inadequacy to cope with the force beyond bands, which one may feel physically in a storm at sea, in a conflagration, or when confront confronting some typical wild beast, or rather, perhaps, the shark in the ocean. I felt morally opposed to my will was another will as far superior to its strength as storm, fire, and, and shark are superior in material force to the force of man. And now, as this impression grew on me, now came at last horror, horror of a degree that no words can convey. Still I retained pride, if not courage. And in my own mind I said, this is horror, but it is not fear. Unless I fear, I cannot be harmed. My reason rejects this thing. It is an illusion. I do not fear. With a violent effort, I succeeded at last in stretching out my hand towards the weapon on the table. As I did so, on the arm and shoulder, I received a strange shock, and my arm fell to my side powerless. And now, to add to my horror, the light began slowly to wane from the candles. They were not, as it were, extinguished, but their flames seemed very gradually withdrawn. It was the same with the fire. The light was extinguished from the fuel. In a few minutes, the room was in utter darkness. The dread that came over me to be thus in the dark with that thing, whose power was so intensely felt, brought on a reaction of nerve. In fact, terror had reached that climax. That either my senses must have deserted me, or I must have burst through the spell. I did burst through it. I found voice, though the voice was a shriek. I remember that I brought forth with words like these. I do not fear. My soul does not fear. Excuse me a second. And at the same time, I felt the strength rise. Still, in that profound gloom, I rushed to one of the windows, tore aside the curtain, flung open the shutters. My first thought was, light. 
and when I saw the moon high, clear and calm, I felt a joy that almost compensated me for my previous terror. There was the moon. There was the light from the gas lamps in the deserted, slumberous street. I turned to look back into the room. The moon penetrated its shadow very palely and partially, but still there was light. The dark thing, whatever it might be, was gone, except that I could yet see a dim shadow, which seemed the shadow of that shade against the opposite wall. My eye now rested on the table, and from under the table, which was without cloth or cover, an old mahogany round table, there was a hand, visible as far as the wrist. It was a hand, seemingly, as much of, as of flesh and blood as my own, but the hand of an aged person, lean, wrinkled, small too, a woman's hand. That hand very softly closed on the two letters that lay on the table. Hand and letters both vanished. Then there came the, the same three loud and measured knocks I had heard on the bed before this extraordinary drama commenced. As the sounds slowly ceased, I felt the whole room vibrate sensibly. And at the far end, and there rose from the floor sparks of, glo uh, 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 sparks of globules, like globules of lights. What is that? G-L-O-B-U-L-E-S. Of light, many color green, yellow, fire red, azure, up and down to and fro, hither, thither, as tiny roll of the wisps. Hang on a second. That's right, if I move this, I get lost. As tiny roll of the wisps, the sparks moved, slowly and swift, each on its own caprice. A chair, as in the drawing room below, was not advanced from the wall without apparent agency, and placed, oh, I'm sorry, was now advanced, sorry, was now advanced from the wall without apparent agency, and placed at the opposite side of the table. Suddenly, as forced from the air, there grew a shape, a woman's shape. It was distinct as a, it was distinct as a shape of life, ghastly as a shape of death. The face was that of youth, with a strange, mournful beauty. The throat and shoulders were bare, the rest of the form in the loose robe of cloudy white. It began sleeking its long yellow hair, which fell over its shoulders. Its eyes were not turned towards me, but to the floor. It seemed to be listening, watching, and waiting. The shadow of the shade in the background grew darker, and again I thought I saw eyes gleaming out from the summit of the shadow, eyes fixed upon that shape. As if from the door, though it did not open, there grew out another shape, equally distinct, equally ghastly, a man's shape, a young man's. It was in the dress of the last century, or rather the likeness to such a dress, for both the male and female, though defined, were evidently unsubstantial, impalpable phantasms. And there was something incongruous, grotesque, yet fearful in the contrast between the elaborate finery, the courtly precision of that old-fashioned garb with its ruffles and lace and buckles, and the corpse-like aspect and ghost-like stillness of the fitting wearer. Just as the male shape approached the female, the dark shadow started from the wall, and all three for a moment were wrapped in darkness. When the pale light returned, the two phantasms were as if in the grasp of the shadow that towered between them, and there was a bloodstain on the breast of the female and the phantom male was leaning on his phantom sword, and the blood seemed trickling fast from the ruffles, from the lace, and the darkness of the intermediate shadow swallowed them up. They were gone. And again the bubbles of light shot, 
and sailed and undulated, growing thicker and thicker, with them more wildly confused in their movements. The closet door to the right of the fireplace was now open, and from the aperture there came the form of an aged woman. In her hand she held letters, the very letters over which I had seen the hand close, close, and behind her I heard footsteps. She turned round as if to listen, and then she opened her letters and seemed to read, and over her shoulder I saw a livid face. The face of a man long drowned, bloated, bleached, seaweed tangled in his dripping hair, and at her feet lay a form as of a corpse. And beside the corpse there towered a child, a miserable, squalid child, with famine in his cheeks and fear in his eyes. And as I looked in the old woman's face, the wrinkles and lines vanished. And it became the face of youth, hard-eyed, stony, but still youth. And the shadow darted forth and darkened over these, fan these phantoms, and they had darkened over the last. Nothing now was left but the shadow. And on that, my eyes were intently fixed, till again eyes grew out of the shadow, malignant, serpent eyes. And the bubbles of light again rose and fell, and in a disordered, irregular, turbulent maze, mingled with the way of moonlight. And now, from these glow, from, from these, I'm going to say orbs, okay, G-L-O-B-U-L-E-S, okay, and now from these orbs themselves, as from the shell of an egg, monstrous things burst out. The air grew filled with them, lardy to bloodless, oh, lardy so bloodless and so hideous that I can in no way describe them except to remind the reader of the swarming life which the solar microscope brings before the eyes in a drop of water, things transparent, supple, agile, chasing each other, devouring each other, forms like not ever beheld by the naked eye. As the shapes were without symmetry, so their movements were without order. In their very vagrancies, there was no sport. They came round me and round, thicker and faster and swifter swarming over my head, crawling over my right arm, which was outstretched in involuntary command against all evil things. Sometimes I felt myself touched, but not by them. Invisible hands touched me. Once I felt the clutch of cold, soft fingers at my throat. I was still equally conscious that if I gave way to fear, I should be in bodily peril, and I concentrated all my faculties in the, in the single focus of resisting, stubborn will. As I turned my sight from the shadow above all, from those strange serpent eyes, eyes that had now become distinctly visible, for there, though in the knot else round me, I was aware that there was a will, and a will of intent, intense creative working evil, which might crush my own. The pale atmosphere in the room began to redden, as if in the air of some near conflagration. The larvae grew lurid as things that live on fire. Again, the room vibrated when I heard three measured knocks, and again all things were swallowed up in the darkness of the dark shadow, as if out of the darkness all had come, into that darkness all returned. As the globe receded, the shadow was, whole, was completely gone. Slowly, as it had been withdrawn, the flame grew again in the candles on the table. Again, into the fuel in the grate. The room came once more calmly, healthily into sight. Nothing more chance for the rest of the night. Nor, indeed, had I long to wait before the dawn broke. That was a good one. 
So we have some appendix to read here. So we're going to finish it off with appendix and the author's note, and then we'll be switching to the other book. So appendix A, let me grab some grover juice real quick here. No further salt, okay? Oh, that felt good. Okay, appendix A, historical ghosts. Royalty and well-known personages have seen ghosts in all the ages of the world's history. Certainly they are not exempt from the common run of humanity, so far as ghostly visitations are concerned. Mr. Steed has compiled a number of notable cases of this character, of which the following are probably the most noteworthy. So here we go. Royal. Henry VIII of France told D'Aubigny that, in the presence of himself, the Archbishop of Lyons, and three ladies of the court. The Queen Margaret of Valois saw the apparition of a certain cardinal afterwards, found him have died at the moment. I think it's Henry IV, we're just gonna go with that, Henry the Fourth. Sorry about that. I don't I don't read Roman as well. Abel, the practice the fratricide king of Denmark, still haunts the woods of Poole near the city of Sleswig. Valdemar IV haunts Kerwood near Elsinore. Charles XI of Sweden Accompanied by his chamberlain and state physician, witnessed the trial of the assassin of Octavius III, which occurred nearly a century later. James I.V. of Scotland. Let me get this going. Come on. Stop it right there. For some reason. Okay. James I.V. of Scotland was warned by an apparition against his intended expedition to England. He, however, proceeded and fell at Flodden Field. Charles I. Like that one I could read of England was also warned by an apparition, but paying no heed was disastrously de defeated in Aysby. Queen Elizabeth is said to have been warned of her death by the apparition of her own double. Ooh, interesting. Emperors. Trajan and Caracalla both saw apparitions, which they recorded. Theodosius and Julian the Apostate both beheld apparitions in important crises in their lives. Famous men. Bear in mind, this is the 1800s, you guys, so it's not going to be people like in modern times. So Robert Peel and his brother both saw Lord Byron in London when he was in reality living dangerously ill, lying dangerously ill of a fever in Patras. During the same fever, he also appeared to others. Julius Caesar, Xerxes, Drusus, Pausanias, Dio, General of the Syracuse, Admiral Coligny, all saw apparitions which made a deep impression on them in every case. Napoleon at St. Helena, saw and conversed with the apparition of Josephine, who warned him of his approaching death. Blucher, on the day of his death, was also told of it by an apparition. General Garfield saw and conversed with his father, laterally deceased. Lincoln had a certain premonition dream which occurred three times in relation to important battles, and the fourth on the eve of his assassination. Dante, son of the poet, was visited in a dream by his father, who conversed with him and told him correctly where to find the missing 13 cantos of the Commedia. Gay saw his own double riding by his side under conditions which really occurred years later. Tasso saw and conversed with beings invisible to those about him. Cellini was dissuaded from suicide by the apparition of a young man who frequently visited and encouraged him. Mozart was visited by a mysterious person who ordered him to compose uh, uh, a requiem. 
and came forward frequently and came frequently to inquire after its progress, but disappeared upon its completion, which occurred just in time for its first performance at his own funeral. Ben Johnson was visited by the apparition of his eldest son with the mark of a bloody cross upon his forehead at the moment of his death, the plague. Thackeray wrote, It is all very well for you, who have probably never seen spirit manifestations, to talk as you do. But had you seen what I have witnessed, you would hold a different opinion. Hugh Miller, Maria Edgeworth, Captain Marriott, Madame de Stahl, Storm Humpty, Humphrey Davy, William Harvey, Francis Bacon, Martin Luther, George Fox, Cardinal Newman, Bishop Wilderforce, and many others have seen apparitions or held comment or held comment conversations with the unseen world in one form or another, as recorded by themselves. Among the famous historical hauntings, we must not forget to mention the famous Cock Lane ghost, which occurred about 1760, according to a brief paragraph printed in the London Ledger, 1762. We read that. For some time, a great knocking had been heard in the night at the officiating parish clerks of St. Sepulchre's in Cock Lane, near Smithfield. To the great terror of the family, and all, and all means used to discover the meaning of it having failed, four gentlemen sat up there last Friday night, among whom was a clergyman standing with, with inside the door, who asked various questions. On his asking whether anyone had been murdered, no answer was made. But I was asking whether anyone had been poisoned. It knocked one and thirty times. The report current in the neighborhood is that a woman was at some point poisoned and buried in St. John's Clerkenwell by her brother-in-law. Those knockings and phenomena occurred for a considerable time until the whole community became interested in the manifestations. While various theories were advanced at the time and since to explain this ghost, no definite conclusion has ever been arrived at. The drummer of Tedworth is still older and equally famous ghost who flourished about a hundred years before the Cock Lane ghost and was investigated and the results carefully recorded by Sir Joseph Glanville, FRS, who wrote a book about the case. I cannot say this word. <laughs> S-A-D-D-U-C-I-S-M-U-S Tripitus that I can read, was also devoted to the general, to the general phenomenon of witchcraft. Here, also, we find records of unaccountable knockings and similar phenomena, which lasted for, for a considerable time and which have never yet been explained. The ghost, which invaded John Wesley's house, stayed with him for several years and manifested his presence in a variety of elaborate and ingenious ways. Those who are interested in this ghost and his doing should read Wesley's journal. Also, the various discussions pro and con which have appeared in the proceedings of the Society for Cyclical Research from time to time is a most curious and suggestive record. The Devils of Loudon might also be cited as an interesting case of psychic phenomena, and here trance, automatic speech, etc. were observed as well as the usual physical phenomena. This is perhaps one of the earliest cases which was closely observed and in which skeptical criticism was applied. This case will be found recorded in Mr. H. Addington Bruce's Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters. The Phantom Army Seen in France History abounds in cases showing the apparent intrusion of spiritual help in time of trouble, and in the annals of military history, these accounts are not lacking. 
On several occasions, the Crusaders thought that they saw angelic hosts fighting for them, phantom horsemen charging the enemy, with their own under destruction seemed imminent, when their own destruction seemed imminent. In the wars between the English and the Scotch, several such cases were cited, and during the during the Napoleonic, the Napoleonic Wars, why can't I say these words? Also furnished examples. But the most striking evidence of this character, because the newest and supported apparently by a good deal of first-hand and sincere testimony, is that afforded by the phantom army seen in France during the retreat of the British army from Mons, the field of Agincourt, cut off by overwhelming numbers, and all but, hang on, see what it here. It's just not moving the way it should be. And all but annihilated. The British army fought desperately, but the 80,000 were opposed by 300,000 Germans, backed by a terrific fire of artillery, and were indeed in a critical position. They were only saved, as we know, by the heroism of a small force of men, in rear guard, who were practically wiped out in consequence. At the most critical moment came what appeared to be an angelic assistance. The tide of the battle seemed to, seemed to be stemmed by supernatural means. In a letter written by a soldier who actually witnessed these startling events, quoted by the honorary Mrs. St. John Rildmay, North American Review, August 1915, the following graphic account is given. Our soldier writes, The men joked at the shells and found many funny names for them, and had bets about them, and greeted them with music hall songs as they screamed in this terrifying cannonfall. The climax seemed to have been reached, but, but a seven times heated hell of the army's onslaught fell upon them, rendering brother from brother, or rending brother from brother. At the very moment, they saw from their trenches a tremendous host moving against their lines, 500 of the thousand who had been detailed to fight the rear guard action remained. And, as far as they could see, the German infantry was pressing on against them, column by column, a great world of men, 10,000 of them, as they appeared afterwards. There was no hope at all. Some of them shook hands. One man improvised a new version of the battle song to Harari, ending, and we shot go there. And all went on fighting and firing steadily. The enemy dropped line after line, while the few machine guns did their best. Everyone knew it was of no use. The dead great bodies lay in companies and battalions, but others came on and on, swarming and advancing from beyond and beyond. Well, without end, Amen, said one of the British soldiers, with some irreverence, as he took aim and fired. Then he remembered a vegetarian restaurant in London, where he had once or twice eaten queer dishes of cutlets made of lentils and nuts that pretended to be steaks. On all the plates in this restaurant, a figure of St. George was printed in blue on the motto, with the motto, Adist Anglis Sanctus Gorgias. May St. George be a present help to England. The soldier happened to know Latin and other useless things, and so, as he fired at the great advancing mass, 300 yards away, he uttered a pious vegetarian motto. He went on flirting to the end, till at last, Bill on his right, had to clown him cheerfully on the head to make him stop, pointing out, as he did, that the king's ammunition cost money and was not likely to be wasted. For, as a Latin scholar uttered his invocation, he felt something between a shudder and an electric shock pass through his body. 
The role of the battle died down in his ears and to a gentle murmur. And instead of it, he says, he heard a great voice louder than a thunder peal, crying, Onray, crying, Away, away. His heart grew hot as the burning coal. Then it grew cold as ice within him. For it seemed to him a tumult of voices answered to the summons. He heard or seemed to hear a thousand shouting, St. George, St. George. Ha, Messiah, St. George. Sweet Saint, grant us good deliverance. St. George from Mary England. Hello, hello, Monsignor, St. George, Socorus, ha. St. George, a low bow and a strong bow. King of heaven, aid us. As the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him, beyond the trench, a long line of shapes with a, shi with a shining about them. They were like men who drew the bow, and with another shout, their cloud of arrows flew singing through the air toward the German host. The other men in the trenches were, were firing all the while. They had no hope, but they aimed just as if they had been shooting at Bisley. Suddenly, one of them lifted up his voice in plain English. God help us, he bellowed to the man next to him, but we're blooming marvels. Look at those great gentlemen. Look at them. They're not going down in dozens or hundreds. It's thousands. It is. Look, look. They're a regiment gone while I'm talking to you. Shut it, the other soldier bellowed, taking aim. Why are you talking? What are you talking about? But he gulped with astonishment even as he spoke, for indeed the great men were falling by the thousands. The English could hear the guttural scream of the revolvers as they shot, and line after line crashed to the earth. All the while the Latin red soldier heard the cry, Hello, hello, Monsignor, dear Saint, quick to our aid, St. George, help us. The singing arrows darkened the air, and hordes melted before them, more machine guns. Bill yelled to Tom, Don't hear them, Tom yelled back, but thank God anyway that they have got it in the neck. In fact, there were 10,000 dead Germans, soldiers. I was going to change that. There were 10,000 of the lied German soldiers left before, their salient of the English, left before the salient, that salient of the English army, and consequently, no Sedan. In Germany, the general staff decided that the English must have employed tur tur turpentine shells, as no wounds were discernible in the bodies of the, of the, of the alive soldiers. But the men, who knew what nuts tasted like when they called themselves steak, knew also that St. George had brought his Agincourt bowmen to help the English. Such accounts have been confirmed by others. Thus, Miss Phyllis Campbell, writing in the Occult Review, October 1915, says, I tremble. Now it is safely passed. To look back on the terrible week that brought the Allies in vitri le joy. We had not had our clothes off for the whole of that week because no sooner had our clothes removed, no sooner had we reached home to really undress or to eat and fallen on our beds than the chug chug of the commandant's car would sound in the silence of the deserted street, and the horde would imperatively summon us back to duty because, in addition to our duties as ambulance here, we were interpreters to the post now, at this moment, diminished to half a dozen. Returning at 4.30 in the morning, we stood on the end of the platform, watching the train crawl through the blue-green mist of the forest into the clearing, and draw up for the first wounded from, from the battle. It was packed with dead and dying and badly wounded. 
For a time we forgot our weariness in a race against time, removing the dead and dying, and attending to those in need. I was bandaging a man's shattered arm with a with the major instructing me while he stitched a horrible gap in his head when Madame de that's A, that's what we're gonna get the heroic president of the post came and replaced me. There is an English in the fifth wagon, she said. He wants something. I think a holy picture. The idea of an English soldier wanting a holy picture struck me, even in that atmosphere of blood and misery, as something to smile at. But I hurried away. The English was a Lanarchizer Fusilier. He was propped up in a corner, his left arm tied up in a peasant woman's handkerchief. Peasant, I'm sorry. In a peasant woman's handkerchief. And his head newly bandaged. He should have been in a state of collapse from loss of blood, for his tattered uniform was soaked and caked in blood, but his face paper white under the dirt of conflict. Okay. He looked at me with bright, courageous eyes and asked for a picture or a medal. He didn't care which. St. George. I asked him if he was a Catholic. No. He was a Methodist. And he wanted a picture or a medal of St. George because he had seen him on a white horse leading the British during the battle when the Allies turned. There was an FRA man ruling the leg sitting beside him on the floor. He saw my look of amazement and hastened in. It's true, sister, he said. We all saw it. First there was a sort of yellow mist-like, sort of risen before the Germans, as they came on the top of the hill, came on like a solid wall. They did, springing out of the earth, just solid, no into them. I just give up. No use fighting a whole German race, thinks I. It's all up with us. The next minute comes this funny cloud of light, and when it clears off, there's a tall man with yellow hair and golden armor, on a white horse, holding up his sword, his mouth opened as if he were saying, Come on, boys, I'll put the kibosh on the devils. Sort of, this is my picnic expression. Then, before you could say knife, the Germans had turned, and we were, we were after them, fighting like 90. What was this? I asked. But neither of them could tell. They had marched fighting a rearguard action, from Mons till St. George had appeared through the haze of light and turned the enemy. They both knew it was St. George. Hadn't they seen him with the sword on every quid that they'd ever seen? The Frenchies had seen him, too, and asked them. But they, too, said it was St. Michael. <laughs> Much additional testimony of a like nature might be given, as has been collected by students of cyclical research. If the spiritual world ever intervenes in matters mundane, it assuredly did so on this occasion and it could hardly have chosen a more opportune time. The inspiring thoughts of the dead and dying, and those still living and fighting for their country, had drawn St. George Earth to aid in again redeeming his country from a foreign foe. Could a simple hallucination have been so widespread and so prevalent? Or might there have been some spiritual energy behind the visions thus seen? stimulating them and inspiring and encouraging the stricken soldiers. We cannot say. We only know what the soldiers themselves say, and we also know the undoubted effects upon the enemy, for on both occasions were the Germans repulsed with terrible slaughter. Perhaps the vision of St. George led our soldiers into, clo into closer touch and rapport with the consciousness of some high intelligence, or the veil was rent, separating the two worlds. 
where so often appears to be the case, as so often appears to be the case, in apparitions and visions of this character. Appendix C, bibliography, we're not going to get into that because I'm going to really look some of these books on the bibliography up and maybe, you know, get us going on those things. So we're just going to sit on that. Okay. All right, transcribers notes to see if we got everything off on this one. Okay, that's it. So that's the end of that. And uh, we got about three minutes, so we're pretty well done for the night. Uh, next week we'll be starting a new book. Um, I was going to read from, let me see, this is the one I was going to read from tonight. And it was called, let me flip back up here. It is called um, The Room in the Tower. But as, as, as you heard, there's uh, him, like, put some different book names in there, the writers. I want to take a look and see if those are available because some of those are also true ghost stories just like these, and I thought these were pretty cool. So that's going to do it for today, and it kind of ended perfectly for, my, you know, for timing. But I want to thank everybody who listened today. I know it's Sunday, you're all winding down. But I will see you tomorrow, and tomorrow, please take note, tomorrow the show will be at, at, uh, at noon Pacific. The gentleman I'm interviewing is in the UK, so it should be an interesting show. Where's the water? Ah, it's very hot in here. Uh, so his name is Phil Webster, and he is a psychic medium, but he has a unique story as to how he came about being a psychic medium. So we're going to hear about that. So it should be an interesting interview. Like I said, his story is very unique and eye-opening. So I'll be, be sure to be here at uh, noon tomorrow. But if you're not available at noon tomorrow, my nose keeps stuffing up. Allergies. But if you're not available at noon tomorrow, of course, the show will be available on Facebook and on YouTube for you to take a look at later on in the day. All right. Well, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hate the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California House Radio. We're just, again, we're just trying to get the word out about our little show. This book that we read tonight and finished uh, is available. Uh, True Ghost Stories by Herbert Carrington is available at Amazon. It's also available through Project Gutenberg, where they have tons, like I said, they, excuse me, they have tons and tons of stories, stuff like this. And not, not only, excuse me, jeez, pardon me, must have been the breakfast. And, you know, not only ghost stories, they have all, all types of different books available, okay? So, yeah, so we're going to be moving on next week to a different book, and I'm going to, after the show here, I'm going to be looking up some of these books and, and you know, to uh, see what they're about, see if I can find them in that stuff, and we can just keep reading these ghost stories, because it's pretty cool. Pretty cool for a Sunday. All right, tomorrow back here at noon, and I hope to see you all here. And look at that, I almost dropped off into Mario Land again. Blast it all. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, I guess I will see you guys tomorrow. Oh, yes, if you guys are interested in doing some meditation, especially with the weather changing like it is, you know, we're starting to get into spring over here in the U.S., probably Australia is starting to go into winter because our summer is in winter. Anyway, if you guys are interested in, having, in meditating, I do meditation, and uh, I do do two meditation, um, what is it, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sundays right now. I'm trying to expand to more days. We're you know, working on getting there. But uh, you can sign up over at the California Haunts Meetup. Just go to California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup and you'll see the meditation event. And I try to make it as convenient as possible. 
because I know we have people living on the East Coast, so we do have a 3.30 p.m. Pacific one, which puts it at 7.30 p.m. on the East Coast. And then we have one, that, like tonight, that follows the show at 7.45 p.m. Pacific for you to do, you know, for people on the West Coast or Central Time or whatever. But uh, we do try to do a, a different meditation at, you know, every night when we do them. And uh, a lot of people feel better about it. You know, it doesn't take up much of your time, maybe 30 well, I saw it. Look at that. Okay. Wow. Ever since the storm, I mean, it's been jacked. Anyway, I'll oh, wash my face now. Do what I'm supposed to do. Anyway, yeah. So uh, they, they don't take more. You know, it's, it's no longer than 30 minutes to 45 minutes for an evening to do these meditations. But I cover everything from stress relief to you know to uh, health and all that stuff into abundance. We can always use more money, right? So I do, So there's abundance meditations in there. There's seasonal meditations in there. So if it's something you might be interested in, come on over again to the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup and sign up, either for the 3.30 p.m. Pacific or the 7.45. All right, well, I'll see you guys tomorrow, 12.30, or sorry, 12 p.m. Pacific. Get my time straight, right? But I'll see you guys tomorrow. Thank you for coming. And again, if you like and heard what you saw, share it with friends of yours or whatever. Be sure to hit that uh, subscribe button on YouTube. Hit that like, hit that follow button on Facebook, and uh, hit that like button over and that subscribe button over over Twitch. If you do that for me. All right, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great rest of your weekend and enjoy.